0: If you were a disciple of the Lord Jesus, then you are, as the word Christian indicates, you are a little Christ. A little Christ. A mother was preparing a pancake breakfast for her little boys, Kevin and Ryan. And so the boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. And so their mom thought that this was a great teaching moment. So she said, now boys, let's just pause just a moment. Let me just tell you that if Jesus were sitting here today, Jesus would say, let my brother have the first pancake and I'll wait. The two little boys sat there silently for a moment and then five-year-old Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, okay, Ryan, you be Jesus first. <laughs> That's sort of the challenge for us, isn't it? I mean, when the, when the pressure's on, when we come to the moment, when we come to really that critical moment, it's easy for, for someone else to be Jesus in that moment. You know, one of the most difficult lessons, I think, in life is is to grasp the reality that our experience with God as a true disciple is based upon how I relate and what I'm willing to give of myself to others. A Christian lives for the sake of others. That's why you see over and over in the New Testament, you'll see words like encourage one another, love one another, be connected with one another, comfort one another. You see, your vertical relationship with God is dynamically involved with your horizontal relationship with others. You know, what's interesting, Martin Luther King once said that life's most persistent and urgent question is this, what are you doing for others? If you and I are genuine disciples, then we're giving ourselves to and with and connected with others. It is a persistent and urgent question that we face. This is why we exercise compassion on those who are stuck in the ruts of life. This is why we advance biblical values in our communities. This is why we pursue justice in the political systems and structures of our society. You see, the outward mindset of a Christian is upon others. Now, today, we're going to consider another other. Last week, we considered the other of encourage each other. Today, we're going to look at another other. It's be connected, how we're connecting with one another. And the larger passage finds itself in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I invite you to locate that passage and keep your Bibles open to that location. But there is one verse that sort of sets us off in the direction of where I want the message to go today. And we're going to focus on this, verse 27. Would you stand, please, as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word? One verse at this moment, but as I said, there'll be other verses throughout this passage and message. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. You are the body of Christ and individual members of it. May God add his blessings upon his word this day. You may be seated. Thank you. We're living in a day when connection has become a familiar idea to most of us. And while I'm probably the most computer illiterate person in this auditorium today, I do recognize the value of connectivity for, for we know it to be true and important in the internet, in smartphones, computers and tablets, and Instagram and Pinterest and Twitter and Facebook, All of these forms of digital media, we know how important it is to be connected and how it requires connectivity in order to be connected. One day I noticed our four-year-old grandson was in our home. He was playing with a flip phone that his dad must have had back in the day. But now this was his. It did not work, but it was his... play with and so he was busy carrying on and an imaginary conversation with who knows who on the other end but I noticed that in that conversation he became noticeably agitated and so I asked him I said son why are you so upset he holds up that flip phone and he says I've got no Wi-Fi I suppose even for a four-year-old, we understand and appreciate the importance of connectivity. But you know what? This is nothing new because the Apostle Paul spoke of this to a first century church in Corinth. He writes to that church and he gives them the most comprehensive statements on on connection that you're going to find anywhere. As a matter of fact, you're you're going to notice that In this church it would seem that connectivity was missing and as the Holy Spirit was directing the apostle to write to this church he was prompted to to include a large block of his writing to this subject of being connected with one another. I suppose when you sort of cull it all down, you begin to realize that whether it's a church in Corinth in the first century or whether it's a church in the Lake Norman area in 2017, it really makes no difference. That's really what we hunger for, isn't it? To be connected with one another. We want to know that, that, we're, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, but yet something that's going to, to minister and help us. But I tell you, one of the challenges, one of the challenges of your walk as a Christian, as a disciple, one of the challenges that you're going to face is being connected. There's so many people who feel like they don't really need to be connected. We feel like we can do it ourselves. We can do it on our own. Why do we find it so hard to connect well, we might be tempted to fix the blame on something external like like maybe blame it on mobile devices and social media that has driven us more and more into this kind of protected isolation. Or maybe it's something much more personal than that. Let me share with you a couple of reasons why we may find it difficult to connect with one another. One reason is this. Maybe it's because of the complexity of our own inner struggle. The complexity of who we are deep down inside where nobody else sees but us. And that struggle is often lived out in a warring between two natures. We get glimpses of this when we read Romans chapter 7. When Paul says, the thing that I want to do, I wind up not doing. And the thing that I know that I shouldn't do, that's the very thing that I wind up doing. It's a war. I look within my own heart and I think that there are times when I am soft and kind. But then there are other times when I am hard and I am mean-spirited. Sometimes I have the most mean-spirited thoughts. I mean, can you identify with that? I may be sitting in a restaurant and I'll see someone. Or I may see someone just walk down randomly in the road. And and all of a sudden, this mean, critical spirit just comes in. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I'm like the person that Poet William Blake once wrote about when he said that cruelty has a human heart and jealousy a human face. I sometimes see that face in the mirror, and sometimes I hear the suggestions of that heart. So let me ask us all a question. Do we really know who we are, really? Can we put our identity into words and get a handle on it? You know, the prophet Jeremiah made an interesting statement. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? I'm reminded of another poem written by Edward Sanford Martin. Let me read that poem and see if it resonates with you as it does me. He says, within my earthly temple there is a crowd. There's one of us that's humble and one that's proud. There's one that's brokenhearted for his sins. Another one that's unrepentant sits and grins. There's one that loves his neighbor as himself and one that cares for naught but fame and wealth. For much corroding care I should be free if I could just once determine which one is me. You see, that's us, isn't it? Complicated, confusing, exciting, complex, but frustrating. And all of those people live in us. And so maybe one of the reasons we find it difficult to connect is because of, the own, of our own complexity. We can't really figure out who we are. Here's something else. Here's another reason. Maybe we find it hard to connect because it's fear that keeps us from reaching out to others. More specifically, the fear that we might be rejected. You see, maybe we're afraid that if we start opening ourselves up to others, if we start being real, if someone else really begins to understand and know the secrets about who we are that we try to keep hidden from others... They're going to use that against us. I'm reminded of a story that I heard about a group of porcupines and how familiar and common that is to human nature. You see, on a cold winter's night, it's not unusual for a bunch of porcupines to huddle together seeking warmth seeking to be warmed by one another. But the closer they get to each other, the more they stick one another with their their quills and they hurt one another. And so rather than huddling close, they pull apart and they drift apart and some will even freeze to death in the winter of their loneliness. We want connection. There's something within us that really makes us hunger to to be drawn together. But when we do so, sometimes we're hurt. And so we pull away. And we'd rather freeze to death in our loneliness. But there is a place, there is a place that God has designed for us. And Paul speaks of this when he describes the church as a body. There is a place where we should be connected. There is a place where we should be able to find love. There is a place where we should be able to be accepted for who we are, no matter matter who we are and what we've done. Paul describes the church as a body. Now, you know what a body is, but our bodies are amazing. They're amazing things. As a matter of fact, our bodies are like complicated machines. It's constantly pumping and sorting and rebuilding itself. Our brains, even the brain of of the youngest person here today is more complicated than the most powerful computer in the world. But that's the human body. But yet, a part of that body, there are tissues and cells and organs, each with their own individual function and value. Did they contribute to the good of the entire body? And that, says Paul, is a picture of the, of the church of Christ. If you want to find community, you should be able to find it in church, in this church. But the sad reality is that that may not be true. So I suppose the burning question to us today is, do you find this true in our church? And maybe for some of you, maybe you've been hurt by other members of this church. And you realize how imperfect that even this church is. Let me tell you an interesting story. You know, a few weeks ago, I shared a, a series of, of messages on, remember the, the Reformation, these things we believe. It was the five, the five solas of the Reformation. Remember that, that series just a few months ago? And one of the the illustrations that I gave in one of those sermons was was an event that history has named the Diet of Worms. It was an occasion at a particular location there in Germany where where Martin Luther was brought before the most powerful, the most distinguished group of leaders in the entire world at that moment. And Martin Luther was brought to that location where he would be asked and demanded... an explanation of his points of resistance to the church. But one of those that was was attending that particular setting that was on the other end of Martin Luther, the one who was one of the most powerful figures at that time was the Roman emperor. His name was Charles V. Charles V was at that location and was one of the ones that was sitting in judgment of Martin Luther at that time. But here's the rest of the story about Charles V. Charles V, sometime after that, just got sick and tired of all the petty bickering that was going on in the Roman Empire, and he threw his hands up, and he says, I don't need this. And Charles V walked away from the throne, just walked away from it. He retired. I'm giving up. He says, I don't want it and he turned it over to his son, Philip II. As history records, Charles V went to live out the rest of his days in a monastery, quiet, away from everyone else. Now, one of the projects that Charles V wanted to do in retirement was this. He had six clocks that he wanted to coordinate together so that all six would chime together at the same time. And it almost drove him crazy because he could never do it. No matter how much he adjusted, no matter how much he tweaked, he could never get those six clocks to chime at the exact same time every hour. Later, he wrote about this in his memoirs. But it's interesting that as he writes about it, he gives an interesting analogy. He, he, he gives the analogy that those six clocks were like six nations in the Roman Empire that was always bickering, They can never be coordinated to chime at the same time for the same reason, and it drove him crazy. And that's why he gave up the throne. But I, th- I find that fascinating as he talks about these six individual clocks. If you were to take those six individual clocks, you would begin to understand and realize that those six individual clocks were six individual bodies, each with a brain and a heart in and of itself. As a matter of fact, it had its own weights and pulleys. Each clock had its own wheels and gears. Every clock had its own brain and heart, so to speak. And to expect that individual body to to be chimed with another independent body, it was impossible. And it like to drove him crazy. The Apostle Paul speaks of something of similar challenge. And that's why he gives an unmistakable truth that you see in verse 12 of chapter 12. Now look at this. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. One body, many parts, that work in a coordinated way under the guidance and the power of one spirit, that's a picture of the church as God designed it. And Paul writes us to remind us that you are a part of that body and that you are part of a well-run machine If anybody asks you if you were a Christian today, if you were filled with the Holy Spirit, your answer is yes. A Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the common power source that connects us all. You see, if you see, there are some truths today that Charles's clocks never realized. You see, there are some realities today that were not true of Charles's day. One truth today is that there is a common standard time. That was not true in Charles's day. There is one time, no matter where you are, one set time. Now, there may be some variations because of, of, uh, of travel and stuff, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's one standard of time that all clocks are set by. And furthermore, it's also interesting that, that, that clocks have a common power source. My cell phone records the exact same time of your cell phone. Why? Because there is a power that is greater than those devices themselves. There's something greater than those individual devices there is a power source that coordinates that time. Paul says the Holy Spirit is that power source. And that's why it's important that you and that me, that each of us who are born again believers in Christ Jesus, that we be filled and controlled by the same Holy Spirit Spirit. That's our power source. And the problems come in our churches is when we're not following the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're off on our own tangents. We're pursuing our own agendas. Now all of that being true, it leads us, I believe, to two undeniable implications of that. Two undeniable implications. Number one, you cannot consider yourself to be insignificant. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you cannot consider yourself to be insignificant. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. If you are a believer and you think that you are insignificant because you can't preach or you can't teach or you can't play an instrument, you can't sing, you're only deceiving yourselves because because you think that the only thing we do as a church is what we do on Sunday morning. That's absolutely incorrect. As a matter of fact, the work of the church doesn't begin until we walk out of the doors of the church. That's when the work of the church really begins. It's not what we do here. You see, our work as Jesus's is to heal the broken hearted to deliver the captives, and to open the eyes of the blind, to preach the good news to the poor. That's the purpose of the church. That doesn't take place in here. It takes place in your neighborhood. It takes place where you work, where you go to school. You see, there are many jobs that are done in the church, in the Church, <clears throat> that are done on Sunday morning. And that's great. But I tell you, the majority of the work of God is right where you live. And you are the app that God has for that. So one of the implications is that you cannot... Consider yourself to be insignificant. Here's another implication. You cannot consider yourself to be independent. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. The weaker are indispensable. I tell you, one of the most dangerous misconceptions of Christian living is that we believe that we don't need the rest of the body, that we're confident in our own abilities and in our own strength and that we can do it ourselves. And this attitude of independence is dangerous because, first of all, it will drive you into becoming more and more isolated and separated from others. And secondly, it will also create a sense of rivalry between you and someone else. Paul says, you were part of a body and you need the other parts of that body. Now right now, at this moment, I'm preaching and I'm using various parts of my body to accomplish that task. I'm using my eyes. I'm using my head. I'm using my lips and my tongue and my vocal cords. I'm using my arms. But you know what? There is a member that I am using that I bet you've never thought about that is absolutely essential to preaching. I don't often think about it myself. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's, it's the furthest from my lips. As a matter of fact, it's so disrespected, I've got it covered up. It's in my shoe. It's my big toe. Do you realize that your big toe is so important? Because because whenever you're standing, it it it, it sends signals to your brain about your swaying or standing, about your balance, your stability. And you never thought about, it, I suppose, but your big toe keeps you balanced, keeps you standing upright. It'd be very, very difficult for me to be before you today, preaching as I'm doing right now, were it not for my big toe. Now I say that to say that when, whenever you come to the pastor's greeting area, don't step on my feet. Is what I'm trying to say, because you may be you may be harming my ministry. Okay? But here's the analogy. Here's the analogy. There are people in the church who are just as essential to the working of, this, of the ministry of the body as the big toe is to the body. Where would we be without the big toes in our ministry? Now, I don't say this in a way to disrespect you, but I'm saying that there's so many who serve in ways that are, that are covered up and, and out of the spotlight. Those that set up and those that hand out. So many who function and work in, in great ways, but without these big toes, we'd be stumbling over ourselves in ministry. You see, when you begin to see yourself as God sees you, you'll see that God works the whole body together in one big, beautiful, coordinated thing. And there's more nothing more beautiful than to see a body working together with all its members, functioning, understanding its own, their own value and doing what God's gifted them to do. I want to share, I want to share a story called The Legend of the Rabbi's Gift. It's a story about a dying monastery At one time, this Christian monastery had been a thriving community and was filled with a lot of people who were serving the Lord in a variety of ways. But things had slowed down over the years until finally there were only five individuals, five brothers left. And all were elderly and all were lonely. The monastery stood beside a beautiful forest and every day one of those one of those five remaining individuals would take a long walk through those beautiful woods he would sometimes be joined by a rabbi in town and they would walk together and they would discuss various things of life and, and the person who was a part of this monastery would often share with the rabbi his his brokenheartedness over his monastery that had grown so weak and was dying. The rabbi would shake his head and he said, I've got no wisdom for you, I'm sorry. It seemed that week after week, month after month, it went like this until one day, the rabbi said something interesting. He says, I don't know why and I don't know how it applies, but I have a word of advice for you today. And here's my word of advice to you. It is this, that one of you, speaking of this, one of you five, one of you is the Messiah. Well, they both thought that was sort of a funny kind of a thing, and they sort of just passed it off. And the rabbi didn't really know why he said that, and, 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 the, and the brother really didn't understand why he was given that bit of advice. But he went back later that night and he was sharing a meal with his other brothers. And they said, Well, how did, how did your walk go today? He said, Well, it was fine, but he said, It was something interesting. He said, The rabbi said something today that was sort of curious. Said that, said that one of us was the Messiah. And they thought that was funny and they laughed. They had a big joke over that. But something curious began to happen because over the weeks and the months to follow, they begin to look at each other as if that was true. And even in conversations, they began to just be very attentive to what the other was saying, and they began to be, begin to notice the others. Is it John? Is it Andrew? What about Charles? What about James? they begin to consider that each of them, because they begin to see traits of the Messiah living out in each of those individuals. And something curious began to happen is that as they began to respect one another and love one another and and listen to one another and care for one another, they began to notice that it began to reverberate out into the community and the community began to take notice of that. Families would come to the monastery and begin to have picnics out on the grounds. And then eventually it got to a place where they began to even invite members of that monastery to lead in Bible studies. And slowly that monastery began to be filled with people again. And life once again entered the, the doors of that monastery. And it all started because of a small group of individuals began to respect and value one another and to be connected with one another. And it changed their life and it changed their monastery. And I'm telling you, friends, it'll change our church. Remember the illustration that I gave you a few moments ago as I started this message that each Christian is a little Christ? And it's true. And as you begin to value the Christ in the others, and you're willing to be connected with them, it begins to build up the strength of the body of which you're a part. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. And it begins with me. It begins with you. And we must begin to see ourselves as part of a body but we also must see ourselves as contributing to that body. And I must be connected to others. And I cannot be a body part if I'm unwilling to be connected. Now let me just talk to the guys just for a moment. The guys, listen, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you guys to step up in this truth. I want to challenge you to be connected more and more. Because your families need it. You need to be connected if you're going to be the leader that God's called you to be in this community. You can't be a disconnected member and, not, and be an effective leader. I think it's interesting, although I did, not, I did not name and title the message today because of our men's retreat, but I think it's interesting the similarity of, of titles. For our men's retreat, we've called it Connect 17. And the reason we do this is because, guys, you need to be connected. And this, is, and this event is for that very purpose. It's to help you to, be, begin, to begin to be more connected with one another. Don't try to exist alone. Guys, we want you at this retreat. If you're not signed up, then you need to do that. You've still got some time. Do this. We want you to be a part of this. We want every man in our church fellowship to be a part of this connection process. Guys, it'll change your life. I'm calling you to do it. So we're called as women, as men, boys and girls, adults, to be connected to a body. It'll change your life. And you can't really function effectively without it.